This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Rebecca Schiller is a gardener, a small holding steward, an activist, and author of A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention, a memoir of coming home to my neurodivergent mind. It is about grounding back to land, place, and the garden, even in the midst of chaos and crisis inside and outside of us. Rebecca, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation and uh, thinking of you a very long way away um, in the morning when I'm here at the end of the day um, in, in England. It feels like a, a great place to start this conversation. So we'll get into that idea of time and place uh, and perception shift. Tell us a little bit more about you and your gardening life. Well, I describe myself somewhat reluctantly as a gardener because I feel um, a little bit uh, mm. like an imposter. Um, I have only been uh, really turning to the land and trying to be in a relationship with it for about six years. When you describe cultivating place, you talk about the human impulse to garden and becoming a gardener was an impulse. I suddenly had a very strong desire to move to the countryside and start to grow things. And it's been a wild, intense roller coaster. I suppose if I had to say what my organizing principle is now, it's more of a disorganizing principle. Um, it's very much trying to let things be, let things go, and let things grow. Uh, and whether that's lots of the ways we're supposed to or should behave in and out of our gardens, or simply my own expectations versus what my land desires mm -hmm. and insists on doing. So really trying to be less in control and cede that control back to the ground and watch what happens and try and be comfortable with what happens, which is often more mess mm -hmm. than, than I would like. So it's trying to listen to the place that I have rather than, than dictate and be patient, which is something that um, I feel like my garden tries very hard and often fails to teach me. And, you know, often that is not what you might see in a magazine, but uh, I attempt to find it very beautiful nonetheless. That idea of letting go, listening, and kind of allowing uh, and learning, those, those are all the gifts the garden brings to us. And sometimes the garden does this with a heavier hand than, than other times. Um, <laughs> take us back. Who were the people, places, and plants that grew you into the person you are? I think like you, it was my mother who showed me about gardening and gardens, um, even though I ignored what she was showing me for about three decades, or at least my conscious mind did. Um, my mother still is and, and was when I was growing up, 
a voracious gardener and we moved uh, when I was little to a rambling Victorian house that had once had the kind of specimen garden um, of Victorian gardeners dreams with lots of beautiful walls and rose gardens and specimen trees and nature had been very busy taking that garden back for a number of decades and um, my mother spent a lot of my childhood reclaiming <laughs> the garden back from nature um, and what I remember most about her and the garden was that she would go out into the garden and forget to return it was a place that she would go and it would envelop her and she would be happy with her work and we would be sort of calling her in at, at, at dark and saying you know we we're really hungry I don't know why we didn't learn to make dinner ourselves I would have I think made my children learn that sooner um, but it was a, a place of work and through that work a kind of rest and restoration which I really identify with now that that rest and relaxation for me isn't doing nothing doing nothing is very difficult for me and I grew up being able to explore and roam what was a huge city center garden um, and while I didn't realize how much I appreciated that um, I, I did and I also spent a lot of time as a teenager um, riding horses and out in those green spaces so my life as, as a child and a teenager was very much made of understanding that nature and gardens and hedges and outside was the place you went to help make the rest of life feel manageable. And I think that's what when lots of things about motherhood and work and politics and the environment and living in a, a big town began to really consciously jangle all my nerves it was inevitable that what would seem like a solution was a large green space to go out into and restore myself through work so there is this moment in your life which in many ways is one of the beginnings in your book that you literally fall down into the, the, the farming garden world. Describe this moment of jangled nerves in a younger Rebecca who decides that she and her family and you with your husband decide it is time to, to go somewhere else and try this other way of life. Well, what I think is wonderful about the stories we tell ourselves about our lives is how many versions there are of them and for a lot a lot of the book I try to work out which of the versions of why we moved to a small holding is true and I think probably they all are at the time it was um 2016 um lots of political turmoil with brexit in the uk obviously mm -hmm. in america and that felt very connected at the time lots of difficult and scary things going on with the environment and we had this wonderful opportunity through work to spend the summer outside away from home in a in Wales, in the mountains, in nature. And this sort of six weeks of 
disconnecting from our usual lives and not being able to do some of the things we usually would and being together outside, I felt a sort of sense of calm and peace that I hadn't felt for a very long time. We felt more connected. And we also felt like these expanses of time opened up to have conversations that mattered that you often can't have in the day-to-day of school run child care work meeting hoover mm. your carpet you know? <laughs> um and and it was about the way that we wanted to live and things felt urgent and volatile and scary outside and i felt a sense that we couldn't rely on the systems and structures that we had been told were very robust and i really wanted to learn to do things that I couldn't learn at home or didn't feel I could learn at home. I wanted to be able to build a fence and dig a big hole and plant a seed. And I wanted my kids to know that too. And I couldn't really explain why, but it was a powerful sense that this was something we needed to do. And because I move very fast, um, and that's something that I've become even more aware of since I wrote the book about how fast I will process things and move it didn't feel like I was rushing but within kind of five months of that summer we had we had moved to the only uh, piece of land with a house on it that we could afford we could afford in the southeast of England I want to define a few terms here because I think it will be important as we move deeper into the trajectory of your garden growing farming life from here. First, define for listeners what you mean when you use the term neurodivergent. For me personally, it's a political term, not a a medical term that describes a person whose brain function differs most widely from the typical brain function. And it can encompass people like me who um, are ADHD, people who are autistic, people who are dyspraxic, and um, other people who have what is often more classically defined as a a sort of mental health condition, also define themselves um, as neurodivergent. And what I love about the term, which was coined by an Australian sociologist, I think his name was Judy Singer, who um, is autistic herself, was that it comes from the idea of uh, biodiversity. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. that's that's the, the inspiration, that instead of saying, there is a correct way to be. And if you are not that way, there is a problem with you. It says that in every aspect of wonderful, rich, biodiverse, you know, planet, we we are supposed to work across a huge spectrum of, of difference. And that there is the the line of normalcy, and I have some inverted commas around that, is, is arbitrary. And the idea of neurodivergence is saying that this isn't, I'm broken, please fix me. This is, I diverge from you, but I, I still belong here. 
This is Cultivating Place. Rebecca Schiller is a gardener, a small holding steward, an activist, and author most recently of A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention, a memoir of coming home to my neurodivergent mind. This is a story of grounding back to land, place, and the garden, even in the midst of chaos and crisis all around. We'll be right back after a break with more from Rebecca and how her garden met her right where she was just when she needed it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Jennifer. With the new moon on November 23rd and the deepening into this season of gratitude, I know I have the pleasant buzz of making things on my mind all the time right now. I just finished knitting a pair of socks for my November-born father's 85th birthday. I'm starting to craft little gift herbal wreaths for friends' doors come December 1st. And even I, not a passionate cook during any season, am yearning for stews and rich sauces and the warmth of the hearth, as it were. The change of seasons is a deep, deep pull. The pull in, the pull to slow down, the pull together. It is notable and it is necessary. What kind of things do you like to make as we head towards the holidays and into winter? If you happen to have making on your mind and hands and you live within driving distance of Chico, California, I'd love to have you join me and botanist friend Adrian Edwards on December 10th on the campus of CSU Chico for a California native plant wreath making workshop. It is always a total blast of really interesting nerdy plant people and holiday fun. You learn your plants, you community craft, you have refreshments and holiday music, and these are all a bonus to actually taking a handmade wreath or other decorative item home with you. We provide all the materials you'll need and all proceeds go to support the botanical, educational, and conservation-hearted mission of CSU Chico's A-Heart Herbarium. So, win-win-win, grow, 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 and ho, ho, ho. Okay, that might have been too much. Was that too much? Doesn't matter. It's the holiday season, and we're going to be making wreaths. It's never too much. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Rebecca Schiller, gardener, small-holding steward, activist, and author. Her most recent book, A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention, Coming Home to My Neurodivergent Mind, tells the story of Rebecca and family's move to a small, less-than-two-acre farm in the southeast of England, in the midst of political and environmental chaos, only to then spin into a mental health crisis, which led to a diagnosis of severe ADHD. 
As we come back, Rebecca is sharing more about her experience of grappling with her ADHD and then of allowing the lives and history of lives on the land she calls home to expand her own thinking and being, allowing her access to seeing beyond the veils, as it were, and constructs of our so-called normal, everyday lives. Yes, I, I think that is one of the wonderful gifts that being here on the small holding has given me is that self-knowledge. Someone once described me as, I think it was a therapist, as incredibly yes, porous. Yes. You know, most people have some boundaries. You know, they, they have some walls. You're completely porous. Um, and that, of course isn't mm. always great and has some significant mm. downsides. Um, but realizing it is important. I hadn't realized that before. And then being able to find ways to protect myself, but also to, to use that and to experience it. And you were talking about that sort of the transparency, the lifting of the veil. And I think one of the things that I write about reasonably early in the book is you know, looking out over my land and being aware that it's almost as if a film is being projected over it. There is something there. There is something shimmering. There are layers here. And oh, Mm -hmm. I want them. You know, I want to know what they are because I also can't leave anything alone. And so a lot of the narrative is, and, and a lot of my time here has been spent wondering what those shimmering layers are and trying different ways to connect to them. And some of them are the people who were here before, and some of them are the plants and the trees. And from that, following rabbit holes and trails that are connected to a whole wealth of different places and people and dimensions in some ways. And of course, you know, that's a little bit, rule breaking and and I think when you were talking about you know looking at the constructs and the way we have to sort of propel ourselves through life often mm-hmm. ignoring a lot of things you know that realizing here partly because of the way gardens don't like to um they don't like rules mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and if you make a rule and a plan they do the other thing mm-hmm. um you know realizing that I find rules very challenging, though I'm also very keen to abide by them at all times. And that finding ways to break rules and overturn things that don't work for me and see that even if I do put in loads of rules and plans, it doesn't matter. That's going to be um, turned over literally sometimes. You know, the, the season that I worked the hardest on growing it lots of things from seed really meticulously planned things that took a long time to germinate I had like 500 baby plants in um, a cold frame and the wind just Mm. came and took it and threw it you know just threw it everywhere they all I lost all but about 20 of them and that was very difficult. I, I can't pretend that I'm over that lesson, but it was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. It, it was one of those, you know, uh, uh, and that year, the celeriac that had gone to seed the year before 
had self-seeded everywhere and all the queens and lace that I'd been growing from seed was destroyed but it turned out the celeriac gone to seed was doing the same thing but better because it was about a foot taller um and (laughs) um and and to be able to see the connection between that and what feels like quite a political um statement about the constraints and the who's allowed and who isn't allowed and who's right and who's wrong um is both weighty and also you know a a wonderful gift that the garden keeps giving me. Yeah. Yeah. So at a certain point in life, you decide that something is clearly different about you and the way you process and the way you work from other people. And I would love to have you um, talk to listeners about, you know, what what led you to this sort of perception and then this decision to try and get a name on it or pin it down a little bit so that maybe you could work with it differently or or better because i think it's directly correlated in some ways with that moment of understanding that you wanted to live a different life and you wanted to engage with your own survival with your family in relationship to land. I think that, that these are two sort of counterpoint articulations um, in in the narrative. Yes, I think, and I realize that this is true of so many things in my life and possibly for many other people, that there were a series of, of realizations and deeply connected decisions, um, all leading up to a realization that I, was probably neurodivergent, but I was following some sort of instinctive path without realizing the reason. So deciding to move here um, was a big reaction, I think, to the stress of living in the world and the life I was living in as a neurodivergent person and knowing well what would both help me and also what would probably put me under such pressure that I would have to face up to there being something I needed to deal with if not not in a fixing way but in a I need to be aware of this I need to reckon with the reality of who I am um but I had no idea and I actually had no idea when I started writing the UK version of this book that I was neurodivergent that book was supposed to be about something else entirely. Um, so. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I did not understand mm. that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it was, you know, because the, the book is written about very recent times, so it, it goes through um, 2019 into 2020, um, and it was published in early 2021. So um, I, you know, my, my publishers thought something very different about, moving to a small holding and um you know 12 months in the small holding um then my editor says she knew it was a different book all along but as I started writing that was the exact time I realized my neurodivergence and then we slid into the pandemic so I wrote those sections in real time as they as they happened and then a year later had the chance to reimagine it for the US version which is also a unusual way way to be writing um 
there's a book by um that i'm sure listeners will will know called rising and um, by elizabeth rush which is uh, was pulitzer prize nominated and she writes at the beginning and i i read this again before i started writing before i i realized that it would be relevant to my book she writes about her own life and moving somewhere and having this relationship with some trees that were dying well before she realized that they were going to be the linchpin of this subject that was going to be so important to her about rising salt levels and um, climate change and she writes sometimes the key arrives before the lock this idea that sometimes you have the solution, you have this, you return to this thing, this place, this time, this, and you don't know why the key arrives before the lock. And I wrote that sentence down and I had it because I knew it was important. And I think the small holding was the key that arrived before the lock, as was the book, writing the book was the key. And, um, in actuality, it wasn't until we'd been here for a few years. It wasn't until I'd been very, very unwell with a, a series of, of mental health crises that I write about in the book and had been misdiagnosed and had a fairly not very nice time of it with, with mental health services that I read an article about um, being a, a, a woman with um, ADHD that just sounded so much like the experience of living inside my head and body that I knew with absolute certainty that that was um, the lock that all of these keys had been waiting for. Um, and that was what led me to, to seek um, a diagnosis um, and um, finally put all of these puzzle pieces um, many of which I'd been completely unaware of for my entire life. Um, and, and most people around me had been unaware of because I'd been masking them um, very uh, effectively, at least externally, for such a long time. In a lot of ways, it is your, your, your gardening, farming relationship to, to the soil, the fences, the animals, um, and of course your family, as you are taking this all in that allows you a pathway toward holding these different words, neurodivergent, ADHD, uh, even, even woman, even, you know, again, time, time and space. And it, 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 it un literally unlocks your ability to, embrace the way you process and see as your greatest strength as well as sometimes your 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 greatest complication <laughs> yes i think that's a lovely way of putting it and i think that that desire to to do that is something that i'm sure um transcends um the boundaries between kind of neurodivergent and and uh, neurotypical, you know, this is something that for many of us, the idea that same in the people we love, you know, the things that drive you mad about your partner, um, your child, your, you know, parent are often the other side of the thing that you think is absolutely wonderful about them. And, and you know, I 
realized that there is a real parallel between the way I had been trying to exist in the world and and live and also the way I'd been trying to to mm-hmm. to do gardening that you know there were two often incom- incompatible um processes happening at the same time and my entire being was consumed with the considerable effort of trying to squish those two opposing <laughs> rationales um and ideas and impulses and make them fit so my real um, neurodivergent instinctive self is firing in many directions all at once and working at a particular speed and um, will happily jump from one thing to another, put something down, pick it up five years later, um, work really, really, really fast for a while and then need to sort of slow down and stop. I will follow an interest and a passion and then I will find another one and um, I won't necessarily choose a goal walk methodically towards it meet it rest in it for a moment then set another one and that's the way that we are supposed that's the way we show successful yeah yeah I mean and again again like reading the book I'm nodding 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 um can you give listeners a a tangible or a slightly more tangible description to illustrate those two contrasting ideas uh, in a way that will give them an like give them a sense of what we're talking about I think one of the clearest illustrations of it is is in the garden so um I am trying to um live here in a way that is Um, treading more lightly on the land is leaving space for wildlife is being very careful about where I intervene and so that side of me wants to let the nettles and the brambles grow and wants to let things self-seed and not mow the grass and not think of weeds as weeds and certainly would never use weed killer and a wonderful abundant tangle of of hedge spilling out over onto the verge at the roadside is the ideal and then I also want very much to be someone who whose neighbors believe is a good homeowner and Mm -hmm. a tidy Mm -hmm. neighbor and um, I have a very beautifully cut hedge and all the edges of my (laughs) borders have been edged and my lawns are cut short and I would not have a bramble or a weed because those are a sign um, and it's been said to me recently you know it look this looks like it's uncared for Mm. this looks like it's uncared for it's a mess and so the tension between mess being bad or mess being good tidiness being good tidiness being bad that's a real um a Right. It's a real tension, um, and I think it's a tension if you're if you're a gardener, what you see, whether it's on Instagram or in books or in magazines, and what we're used to seeing as being the ideal version of a a great, a beautiful, a good garden, and what many of us know in our hearts to be mm. a space that is um, doing good things, allowing good things to happen for the plants and the insect life and the bird life and the small mammal life those two things do smash up against each other and I I spent a lot of time here trying to do both of those 
at the same time to make a very beautiful, very tidy, magazine-worthy, neighbor-friendly space that was also very, very kind to nature. Um, and um, it involves a lot of rationalizing, <laughs> a lot of work, um, and a lot of sort of, of supporting plans that you explain this and that. And it's actually not possible to do both of those things at the same time. Um, but as with trying to work in a neurodivergent way and, and pretend it's a neurotypical way, I had to sort of use myself as the bridge between the two um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, um, hide the messy bits, um, you know, focus on the tidy bits, dress the messy bits up as the tidy bits. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and um, it's, it's just actually exhausting, I think. Um, and I'm sure it's something that, that gardeners will, um, will, you know, identify with that, you know, mess versus tidy. This is Cultivating Place. Rebecca Schiller is a gardener, a small holding steward, an activist, and author of A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention, a memoir of coming home to my neurodivergent mind. This story is about grounding back to the land, to her place, and to the garden. We'll be right back after a break for more from Rebecca and her thousand ways of paying attention. Stay with us. Hey, so, so many things called out to me in this conversation with Rebecca. Her inimitable way of bringing different perception forward and visible for me. This recognition of the illusion of time, space, place, so much of what my garden and my garden life remind me of, and yet I so routinely forget them. I get distracted and I need to be reminded again and again. The slowing, the listening, the learning, the leaning in. Why do we move away from this over and over again? Why do we move away from the fact that we are all in this together over time and space? The two ideas and statements from Rebecca that I have had turning in my head over and over since I spoke with her are these. Sometimes the key arrives before the lock. Oh, I love this idea and its affirmation and the sheer faith of it. Whatever it is arriving, growing, or even ending in our lives, that plant or seed or experience could very well be the exact thing we need to move through the next struggle, doubt, or obstacle in our lives. Trite? Yeah, maybe. True? You better believe it. And this the rest and relaxation of hard physical work. Oh, does that resonate with me? Now, I get it. If you do hard physical work for your livelihood, such as being a professional gardener, it might be less of a rest and relaxation for you than it is for those of us at a desk all day. But the premise still holds 
that sensation of resting our monkey brains and our overwrought nervous systems because we are doing something that moves our hands and bodies with purpose. It could be dancing that does this for you. It could be cooking. It could be folding laundry. It could be planting your bulbs. It could be dancing while dreaming of cooking those onion and garlic bulbs you just put in. Whatever it is for you, find the time, make the time to rest and relax your nerves and your nature through the portals of such meaningful labors of love and life this holiday and winter season. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Rebecca Schiller. Her new book, A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention, Coming Home to My Neurodivergent Mind, tells Rebecca's story of her family's move to a less than two acre farm in the southeast of England in an impulse she had to get away from jangled nerves and the constant political and environmental chaos of 2016. After which she spins into a mental health crisis leading to her diagnosis of severe ADHD. This diagnosis opens Rebecca up to a whole new way of relating understanding, and perceiving. As we come back, Rebecca describes the many facets of the small holding that actually helped her see her ADHD as not just a complication, but also a great asset. One of the things I love about what the experiment have done um, with A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention is they have um, commissioned an illustrator to draw this beautiful um, map of the small holding because I know that that's something that I love when I read about a place. I want to see it. I need to see it. And so I'll try and, I'll try and be that illustration. Um, the plot is bordered by these wonderful old oak trees some of them nearly 400 years old um so on one side there is lovely really old trees and the other side there's lots of very recent um evergreen trees showing where the land was split 100 years ago from a great big pasture into three small holdings and now what we have is um the house is kind of set back a third in the plot and so the the north facing part is lots of shrubs and trees and and a meadow that um, I've been um, finally successfully getting yellow rattle to grow in so that it will parasite on the grass and we can get the wild wildflowers going and also a a pond which I mainly leave alone um, partly because I still don't really know what to do with a pond and 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 partly because the odd bird will um, enjoy water bird will will spend some time there Um, we have a a vegetable garden with the fruit cage, um, which I am inconsistent in my administrations <laughs> too. Um, but it is very fertile. It's heavy clay soil. And it. what I am pleased about is that it now has a real self-seeding bent. So I can leave it alone and it will um, mm-hmm, do mm-hmm. its own thing quite beautifully um we have lawn and um sort of more formal 
less formal now. I have them herbaceous borders and lots of um, lovely spring bulbs. And then ringing the plot is um, a paddock um, with a hazel copse and a wonderful old goat willow tree under which we do run our herd of um, goats and um, a slightly ever-changing cast of poultry. And um, we do also have a, a couple of very small miniature Shetland baby ponies um, mm-hmm. uh, who are, I can't really pretend they're there for any other reason than uh, for therapy. They are, they are my, yeah. uh, my therapy ponies. Really. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, and that, that all looks out over, you know, very traditional English farmland and a woodland which is um, somewhat mysteriously called Devil's Hole, but which is actually very magical and full of bluebells and that kind of magic you have in some places where there are a lot of trees. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, and okay. So you just you just took us to this next part of my question. You know, um, and one of the things, so we will make sure that this illustration is in um, on the web posting for this episode so people can see it and take a look at it. One of the great things about an illustration is is everything looks so tidy, doesn't it, Rebecca? <laughs> oh, it does. I, I, yeah. I think of that quite right. often when I go outside and I think, Oh, I wish it looked like that. And then I think, no, I don't wish it looked like that. But yeah, it looks yeah. so lovely yeah. and new. Well, and, and, and you know, that's that's the, the the beauty as well of like looking at things from ten thousand feet up instead of from like a, an inch away mm. is that it it actually probably does look that tidy from that far up. So yeah, there are several <laughs> several lessons that the land and the universe bring to you across the course of these last six years in relationship to this place. Some of them are the magic you just referred to. Um, Mm. Talk about some of the more transportive aspects of this relationship you've had and, and the access points the land has offered you. And I think you understand what I'm asking, but there is a whole line in the book of kind of time travel and uh, access to the, um, you know, kind of spiritually, existentially whispered voices of, of people from the past who, who you are become attuned to. It's hard to imagine that, you know, something as practical as digging for potatoes would, would, would lead to some kind of transparent mystical magical portal and i i would never consider myself to be someone who was a, looking for those those moments but i think as someone who grows things anyone who gr- has grown anything from seed already does time travel yep you take your seed and you're only doing it because you're, ima- you're you know you're imagining next year you're imagining next year when that plant you're growing now is, you know, smothered in flowers or whatever it's going to be smothered in. Um, and you can begin to imagine that enough that you persist with this tiny little knobbly hard thing that doesn't look like anything. Um, and, you know, 
as gardeners, we're always looking ahead to different seasons or we're thinking back to what we did last season. And I found that when I was doing that, it made me very aware of the um, the kind of lie of the continual forward mm-hmm. thrust of time that, you know, we were here now and then we would take a step and we'd be in the next second. And it felt very much like it, when I was here in a moment thinking about next June because I had this seed I was sowing that I was closer to June (laughs) I was closer and actually in in the book I end up reading quite a bit of physics that I don't really understand but that really confirms that that the way we think about time is a construct it is a lie Mm. um which I find very comforting despite not really understanding it right right Um, I'm with you on that yeah (laughs) and I think that initial feeling of being able to jump through time because of holding a seed was what made me a bit more open to the more profound and 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 weird um sensations I was having about you know who else might have walked this land and how connected I was to them and in the book I develop a relationship with a series of of women who had lived or walked or worked in and around my plot in the past and the way that I got to them was partly with a frustration of what was available in a traditional sensible bullet point on paper sense that I wanted these real lives and these women and and they weren't going to exist in the records in evidence they were their lives weren't captured in that way because of you know, all kinds of structural inequality. Um, and, um, and if I was going to have a relationship with them, I was going to have to color the missing pieces in with parts of myself. And that if I listened hard enough, if I followed the evidence that I had and, and, and found out about them and listened to the land, I might find a deeper connection. And, and I did, I, you know, found that I could so imagine and be in relationship with um, these people that they became very, very, very real to me. And that that felt like it was just as valid as a piece of historical evidence as uh, a book that was written by some chap who had decided to get up and walk across the land and write it all down in you know 1570 um it felt just as valid and much 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 more much more useful particularly because it kept pointing me to difficult things as well as as wonderful things um you know voices who were ignored perspectives that weren't usually heard things in which I was very complicit and um you know and that felt important too. Yeah. And that is a, another recurring theme is this idea of, I am a settler. I don't want to be a settler, but I am a settler. So what do I do with that? How do I go from there? How do I try and re-relate um, in a more uh, in, integral uh, and um, meaningful way? And I, you know, to get to what you were just describing, which was very beautiful. I think that any gardener who has been in a garden, who has moved to a house or or a farm or a land that was lived in by somebody before you that you know of. And you go around that garden 
across the course of the first or second or third year, and you will find evidence and clues of these other people before you all around. And I can think of, you know, the last five houses and gardens I have lived in. And this was true. You know, there was a, an old Norwegian couple who owned the, the very first garden that I like took off as my own adult gardener in. And I felt like I was walking with them all the time, like, oh, now I know why you planted this Philadelphus here. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, now I see why you did this. Um, and that kind of, you know, that garden forensics is what I, I often call it as I'm working in a new space. <laughs> it, it, I, I think everybody will understand what you were just saying. Yes. So, you know, as you look back over the process of writing the first book, Earthed, and then adapting and evolving that book into a thousand ways to pay attention. I mean, there were a thousand surprises as well, I, I know, but in this very personal process, are there findings or conclusions, not that they're a final point, but kind of lessons you did were able to articulate after the process that you would like to share with listeners that we haven't gotten to? I think that one of the one of the key um moments of you know when you you find a piece of information and it drops down and lands and everything else rearranges itself <laughs> around it um one of those moments was seeing um the psychiatrist who uh, I had seen for my diagnosis and he was talking about um, a particular study that had been done on and with um, a particular uh, nomadic uh, tribes people in northern Kenya the Arial people who were um, often carriers of a particular um, uh, genetic marker that is often associated with ADHD and they had found that in those people who were still nomadic that genetic marker was usually associated with those people having the the most significant markers of health and success and when it was found in the same tribes people if they had stopped being nomadic it was associated with the very opposite that those people were often um, the least healthy and least successful mm. and uh, there's various and often slightly problematic theories about ADHD and people having the wanderlust gene, but transcending all of that, this idea that um, perhaps ADHD is a marker of um, nomads who have had to settle down and are uncomfortable with that, that are skills and insight and the way that we want to live and move scanning the whole horizon uh being very attuned to the the big picture rather than the detail thriving on that continual movement um being wonderful in that crisis moment but really struggling when having to sit still cross your arms face the front look mm -hmm. at this one detail on the board you know that made 
a kind of sense and a kind mm-hmm. of peace within me that um, I was a nomad. I would have been a really good nomad. And that actually maybe there was a way of, I don't like life hacks, but maybe there was a way of hacking that mm-hmm. a bit for my life. Like, could I make my life feel nomadic without having to move every day? Um, and I realized it was, again, one of those keys I, I had found before the lock that being on a small holding, having a garden, having animals is a bit like that yeah. every day is different. <laughs> you know, there is always something to have to deal with. Um, and um always a mini crisis, you know, everything changes with regularity. And so I felt as if what I had understood how and why another layer of why I had mm. wanted to move here, what mm-hmm. my instincts had been. Um, and that, that feeling of, of being able to move and be, be freer while being constrained, I know is something that lots of people identified with during the, the pandemic with the various lockdowns that, being privileged enough to have access to outside space and be able to move and cultivate within it felt like being able to move through space and time when in fact we were having to be be very constrained and 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 I will I think I will always feel comforted by the freedom of being able to do that and and uh feel very passionate about more people um having access to that feeling the other aspect that occurred to me while you were describing that is the the beauty of um you know the fact that we are these lives on this planet that is always turning so we really are nomadic no matter what we're doing and and that <laughs> coming home to the seasons coming aware of the seasons of the moon of the sun mm-hmm. of the you know the seasonality of our plants like this does keep us in dynamic flow all the time in a beautiful way in a in a not uncomfortable way uh once once we are um open to it i think uh and recognize it as a constant i think that is um a wonderful dynamic flow is a wonderful way to describe it you know that trying to squish things together Mm -hmm. i was talking about the contradiction between I need everything to be fixed Mm. and have goals and all the lines to be straight. And I want everything to flow. I can't be constrained in that way. Actually realizing that the seasons are wonderfully regular in a way, wonderfully predictable in a way. They provide these, Mm. these moments to lean on. And yet they of course are different every time and are flexible and change. And that both of those things exist at the same time and that the world is not just spinning in one direction Mm -hmm. it spins it goes around and it's also Mm -hmm. spinning on its axis so we are managing to spin in two directions at once it is actually possible we're doing it all the time and that perhaps just giving into it rather than (laughs) resisting it is the way to make those things feel possible rather than feel antagonistic you know, given your um, your nature and what you are nurturing there, if I were to ask you if you had five plants or five plant families that you would not garden or small hold without, what would those be, Rebecca? Well, narrowing things down is not one of my strengths, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
uh, nasturtiums. I love nasturtiums. I love them because of the way that they taste. Um, and I love to be able to eat something that doesn't look like you should be able to eat it, which I always think with a nasturtium. Um, and also because they are so easy and prolific and the way that when they pop up, first of all, they always look like they're doing celebratory jazz hands. They're just <laughs> joyful um, yes. little friends um, who will also self-seed. Um, so I love nasturtiums. Um, and for a similar reason, I would never not have snowdrops. Um, mm. They come at the moment I, you need them in, in this mm -hmm. when it's been perennially dark and muddy and cold and wet and winter seems like it will never end and then there they are um masquerading as grass for a while but then then there they are and uh, i i wouldn't uh, you know they really boost <laughs> boost me at a time i need them um and for slightly less selfish reasons um I'm growing a lot of willow. It, it supports um, such a range of insect life. It's so good for, for the soil. Um, I also use it as um, animal fodder. I cut and, and coppice it and, and, and then it comes back stronger, um, which saves on me, you know, buying various different more processed feeds and, and hay. Um, and um, I think I've, I've recently been taking cuttings from various willow trees and trying to grow lots of different kinds of, uh, of willow. Um, and, and then I think the, the last group is just not a particular species. It's, it's what wants to grow. Um, I think I, I would always try now and um, see what wants to grow in the place that I live and am growing rather than trying to put the things that I insist on growing there because usually that won't work and it's just quite a lot of effort. Um, but also it's so interesting to see what the land is going to offer up and then try and work out why, why that's there, how it got there, why it likes it. Um, so yeah, what wants to grow as a, <laughs> as a genus is what I'm putting in there. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And there's a beautiful line in your book that is like one of these epiphany moments for you where you write, I have always been a multiplicity or a multitude, not a dichotomy. I am both, not either or. And there's just this, mm, this warm, like, ah, that went across me when I read that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it was a real, a real moment of, of landing, again, given to me by my small holding, when I, I found the original name of it, which is Oakley. And Lee is a word that contains layers of meaning that change over time. And at one time have meant a clearing, which is where I live now, the trees have been chopped down, that's why I can grow stuff. And it also means a forest and that learning whether it's okay to be here in the clearing and value it and also 
long for the ancient forest that used to grow here to discover that both of those words are present in the pot's name in the way that they have felt present. I can feel the forest. I'm living in the clearing. Somehow feels like permission to be both. You are the forest and you are the trees. Oh. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been just a treat and an adventure to, to speak with you about this really transporting and beautiful, beautiful book. Well, thank you so much. I um, have so enjoyed uh, this conversation and um, in a, a thousand ways at least. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rebecca Schiller is a gardener, a small holding steward, an activist, and author recently of A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention, a memoir of coming home to my neurodivergent mind, a story of grounding back to land, place, and garden, even after a surprising diagnosis of severe ADHD. Schiller's writing and her gardening life vividly remind us that being different does not have to mean being broken in our minds, our hearts, or our gardens. Because of the length of this rich conversation, we will return with Speaking of Plants next week when, as we really close in on winter in the month of December, we return to the idea of winter dreaming and scheming in conversation with Keir Holmes, author of Garden Refresh, How to Give Your Yard Big Impact on a Small Budget. As the holidays are upon us, this seems like a great approach. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. For all of you human souls who have donated to the growing work of Cultivating Place this past year, please accept my eternal thanks and gratitude. We literally could not do this without you. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.